Jesus. And even as, uh, as, as Raymond started praying, I had this picture, and I, I feel like this is, was probably a, a word for us. But I, I was reminded of the, the bread that they brought to the, in, in the Old Testament to the temple. And then I heard someone saying this the other day, but I was just reminded of it now in this moment that um, it had to be freshly baked bread every morning that was in the temple in the Old Testament. And isn't it interesting that the, you know, the, nowhere in the specifications in the Old Testament when you read about the temple speaks it about there's going to be an oven for them to bake bread. So they didn't bake bread at the temple. The, the priest went home and they baked bread at home and they brought freshly baked bread every time they went to the temple. And it's such a beautiful picture of what each one of us are called to do. You know, when we come together, we don't come to get bread. We come with freshly baked bread. There's a difference. The one who speaks about generosity, and Mother spoke about generosity now, now but they, they is, uh, the, the one speaks of a heart that gives, a heart that is laid down. I bring my bread for others. And the other one speaks about, listen, I, I'm on, a, I'm on a, a, a cruise ship. I want my needs. My needs need to be met. And I just felt there's something in that, that this season the Lord for Wellington is calling us and calling this body to be a body that brings freshly baked bread. Freshly baked bread. You know, the beauty of that is we eat from one another. Because what you bake in the presence of the Lord is not what the other person is necessarily going to bake in the presence of the Lord. And, and so we look towards on one another. We encourage one another. We walk in accountability with one another. And, and together on this battleship, we're actually going after the mission the Lord has for us. So that's, that's something I just felt. Actually, not at all what I want to speak about, but that's something I felt, felt for you guys this morning. And so... Um, this morning is going to, most probably you need to forgive me because I, I think it's going to, I'm going to blurb out stories and things that I, I, re I remember and um, for some of you that is visiting, maybe just give you some context. My wife actually has been part of this congregation, I think we, we said 20 years and I, I've been part here for 13 years or, or she's been in Wellington and this area for 20 years. And um, I've been part of Whittington now for 13 years. So um, this, is quite a, this is quite a place for us, filled with many memories and many stories. And <laughs> I don't want to cry. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, something that I felt to do is I want to honor a couple of people this morning. Specifically, I mean, when, we, when my wife and I, when England and I came onto eldership, it was just before COVID. What a time to come on eldership, you know. We came up, and then COVID happened. Um, and at that time, Mike was still leading the church. We were serving on a Mike's team, and now we're serving on a Morris team. And we, since we came on, we were quite a small team. So we, um, we worked alongside Derek, Pete, and that stage, Morris, and, and Mike. And then the one thing I want to I tell you as a body, because we've been speaking last week about the cruise ship and the battleship. The one thing that stands out for me specifically about the men that's been placed in leadership is eldership. And I say this with conviction, and I say this with um, 
yeah, like uh, I believe that part of what the Lord has done in me is because of these men is that they are truly, each one of them, are good fathers. Do you know that they pray for you as a church? Do you know that they love you? Do you know that they, they, you know, they, when you hurt, they hurt. Like, do you, do you know that as a body? Because often we just see the faces on a Sunday and maybe sometimes on a Wednesday. But I do want to say, when I look at Derek, when I look back at Mike, when I definitely look at, at Morris, when I look at Pete, the one golden thread for me is that these men are good fathers. And we're part of this family. They're physically good fathers with their own families, but they are good fathers in this household. I do want to tell you that. And, um, and you can trust them. You can. You can trust them. I do, want to, I do want to say that to you this morning. I felt to mention that. So I do want to honor Derek. I want to honor you, Morris. Um, or Mike not being here. Um, and then Pete also not being here. But there's, I can say today that I am who I am because of you guys. Truly, the past three years, four years, just looking at you and, and learning and seeing how you do things and see how you do, like working a little bit closer together and seeing how you, you uh, steward your own families has just been amazing, like truly amazing. Um, and I hope you as a congregation know this. <laughs> I do want to say this. Um, and it just reminds me, when, when I got here in 2011, we were still called First Love and back in the day. And I got to this building, I walked in, um, just finished with high school, and I had curly hair. I don't have curly hair anymore. And I just went loose. You know, I just decided I'm done with high school, I'm going to grow an afro. So I walked in with an with a afro in my first year. A broken man coming from a broken family, growing up without a dad, a mom just surviving financially. My brother and I just went through so much trauma. I got saved at the age of 14, and for those five years in high school, there was a sort of healing. And I, I was part of a spiritual family, but to a certain extent, you know, as, as healing has happened, I think there was just much more space for certain things in me to be healed. And I remember walking in. I actually remember that first Sunday walking in in First Love and we had a prayer meeting. And Cassie, some of you know Cassie still from Paul. He's in Paul, uh, part of Paul congregation. He's a, a doctor there in Paul. I remember walking into that, that hall the first Sunday and he pray, he's just starting praying. And I just thought to myself that first Sunday when I saw him praying, what am I joining? <laughs> And then the one side and the other side, I'm like, yo, he, he truly believes what he is praying here. And some of you, if you've never seen Kasi praying, he does Kung Fu while praying. You know, he kicks the devil away, you know. Um, I just remember that. But walking out of that, being so confused, you know, I, I just felt stirred. I just felt so stirred in my spirit. And um, I walked into 2011 I came to this congregation uh, definitely as an orphan at heart displaced completely just had no saint, uh, broken relationships all around me and, and although I, I got to know God as a father there was something in me that I just knew you know I've tasted something but there's actually more and the one thing that stood out for me out of many stories that I can share is 
and I mentioned now about these men, but even at that time when I joined and, and Ron was, Ron Slabber was leading, Paul was leading the church there, one thing that stood out to me, suddenly I was in the presence of fathers. And without them speaking specifically into these wounds and speaking, you know, sitting me down and saying, you need to change whatever, just me looking in the way that they carried themselves and the way that they walked, I experience healing slowly but surely in my heart. Um, I remember the first time I, I had a little bit of social anxiety when I came here in 2011. Um, big groups of people made me very nervous and um, I, I, there was a, a, a chaos of the church and everyone was mingling and I just felt so anxious and so emotional I started crying and I, I remember I just running to the bathroom to get into a bathroom cubicle and to cry and they're not part of this um, I don't know why I'm crying but, um, but I remember Eugene and Laura being in a, in a community with them um, a moment when Eugene came just after me, he grabbed my arm as I went into that bathroom cubicle and he looked at me and said, what is going on? We love you. And that moment literally, I think, just showed me something of spiritual family that I didn't even experience in my own physical family. And um, I, I remember that moment. I remember the first time I led worship in a church context. I stumbled upon worship leading. I was never, I felt like I was never called to lead worship. I, I accidentally ended up there because there was no one. And that specifically Sunday, I was placed on and we didn't have a big team. We didn't have drums or whatever. It was just me and an acoustic guitar and I can only play four or five chords. And next to me was a guy on keys. And I remember we practiced. I got so nervous when we started. I just couldn't play a thing. I put the guitar down. I look at the keyboard player and say, you just go on. I'll just sing. And I just knew I am failing completely now at this moment. If I look in the room and just see everyone is disengaging. No one is engaging in the Lord at all. But I looked at Ron Slaver in the front and his eyes was closed and he was worshiping. And I'm, if it wasn't for that moment, I don't think I would have picked up a guitar and worship um, on, if it wasn't for that moment. Well, I, I felt so overwhelmed and discouraged, and yet here's a man, and he's pressing into the Lord, you know. And I'm, I feel so weak in that moment. Um, and that taught me something of spiritual family. Um, <laughs> I, w I want to see what is. I mean, there's just so many things I can, I can, I can point point out as a student. But there was one moment where I, I know, I, I, this moment completely transformed me. And I would say that was the tipping moment of everything that I've been, you know, taking in regarding uh, the love of God for me that I felt as an orphan at that time. And although this doesn't necessarily, um, there wasn't actually anyone else involved, it was, uh, it was the atmosphere that was created for this to happen. And then I, I remember as a student, I took, a, it was my third year, I took an afternoon nap. Um, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> and uh, I, took a, I took a nap and I had a, I had a dream. And I don't often dream. My wife dreams a lot. I don't. Uh, if I dream, it's really God trying to get my attention. <laughs> and uh, I have this dream of 
um, being in a park, and in this park, there's this little girl with me. Some of you had heard this story, but this is this little girl with me. And in the moment, in this dream that felt so real, I've never had a dream like this before. It felt so real. I just knew this was my daughter, okay? And funny enough, the, my daughter actually in the dream, I called her Emma Joy. And um, we were just in this park, and I remember we just we were interacting, and it felt like three hours. It didn't feel like, you know, usually in dreams you skip to different scenes and different scenarios. It felt real. It felt like this is happening now. And as this is happening, I remember just this inner flow, intense, felt like a flood into my heart, love for this little girl in this dream. And just went on, I think about, it was like about a, a two-hour nap, and I, I remember just waking up, and that emotion is still fresh inside of me. And as I was just sitting there, I was like, okay, Lord, I was actually a little bit upset with the Lord. You just gave me a daughter, and you took her away, you know, how does that work? And um, I asked him, like, what do you want to tell me through this? And I felt God saying, listen, the way that you felt about her, you need to understand that's the way I feel about you. And it was such a tipping point for me in that moment that I can truly say that, you know, I, I do believe I'm still, there's still some orphanness in me um, that the Lord is healing and taking out. But that moment was the tipping, tipping point of so much healing happening in my heart. And I, I want to honor this body. I know some of you only joined recently or the past years, but you're part of this. You know, you're part of the history of what the Lord has been doing here. But this is... You know, this, this was something that really changed, changed my life. And I, I, I thought this morning, what is, is there two things that I maybe want to say? And I felt like, I feel like there's two things on the Lord's heart I do want to mention. And I'm going to teach a little bit if that's okay with everyone. Is that okay? Is everyone still with me? I know. Well, if you're not okay, I'm still going to do uh, <laughs> But the first thing that I, I felt with this story in mind that I just told you, and if there's one thing I can encourage you in a body in, is, it's this. But often we go look and we read about the early church in the book of Acts, and you see that they were devoted people. They gave themselves. They gave themselves to prayer. They gave themselves to fellowship. They gave themselves to the apostles' teachings. They just, they just there was overflow in their hearts and everything. And um, something that, that I realized is that often our devotion shows us what you believe and what you understand of God being devoted to you. Your love for Him often shows how much you understand He loves you. And I do want to encourage you this morning and tell you that if you haven't done this before, Take some time somewhere and cry out to God and tell Him, Lord, show me your love. The scripture is clear that He first loved us. And that's why we actually can come to that place and love Him back. It's not something that we do out of our flesh. It's not something that you can conjure up or try and recreate out of your own strength. But you love Him because He loved you first. I'm not saying here you must have emotional experience. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying often we need to go and just sit with that. You know what I mean? Go and meditate on that. Go and chew a little bit what the Word says about the love of God for us. And it's not a, 
it, listen, it's all about you type of word. In the end, that love comes back to him. Because it, it is about him. So that's the first thing that I would say. The second thing I felt, actually as a, as a word for Josh Jen, but I, I felt like God saying, this is something that I actually want to speak into Wellington. And here's where I'm going to just, just bear with me, because I, I do want to give you context for this. I felt Mark 9 and Mark 10. And uh, I'll just give you a little bit of context. In Mark 9, we see Jesus walking with the disciples. Can you just imagine? He's walking with his faithful followers. And he turns to them and says, Hey guys, I'm going to die. And then I am going to be resurrected again. He makes this statement to them. But scripture is clear. It actually says that the disciples didn't completely understand what Jesus was speaking about. So Jesus made this statement. Obviously, all of us reading that, we're like, yeah, Jesus died for our sins and he was resurrected out of the dead. But at that moment, the disciples were like, we actually don't completely understand what you mean. And isn't it interesting, directly after this conversation, they were walking and the disciples started having this battle and argument among one another. Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? I can just imagine, you know, Peter going and saying, I am the greatest. <laughs> you know? And John saying, no, I am the greatest. Yeah. And then having this conversation, and as they reached the end destination, Jesus knew what they were speaking about. And he asked them. But it's so beautiful. Before we ask them, I just want to point this out. Bible says that he sat down. Jesus sat down before he spoke to them. I know for some of you like a skulker, you're ever spiritualizing him sitting. No. He took the posture of a teacher in that moment. A rabbi sat when he taught. And what Jesus did in that moment is he sat down. It was the mercy of Jesus in action. He could have just rebuked them and said, what are you guys doing? Come rach. But he sits down and then he does something interesting. He calls a child. And he takes the child and puts the child on his lap. And he basically corrects this understanding that the disciples had. Of listen, Jesus is going to die. He's going to He mentioned this, that he's going to get resurrected. I think the only thing that they heard was he's going to be victorious. He's going to come and he's going to take over Rome. He's going to be this king, you know. He's going to be a physical king. We're not going to suffer under the Romans anymore. I want to be the greatest with him. I think that's what they heard. And Jesus comes and he puts a child on his lap. And he corrects them and in such a gentle way. But I want to go on. I'm going to um, stop there again now. And then it goes on to Mark 10. So this is now happening in Mark 9. There's this golden thread through Mark 9 and Mark 10. It goes to Mark 10, verse 13 to 45. But I, I'm first going to read just uh, verse 13 to 16. Kristen, are you also with me? Verse 13, And they were bringing children to him, that he, Jesus, might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now I do want to give just a little bit of context also here. The Jewish people values family. They value family. 
They value, you will see in the Old Testament, Psalm 127 speaks about child being a gift from the Lord, okay? But what they didn't do is they didn't put a romantic picture around children. Like nowadays, when you have a child, you go for a photo, you know, photo of the month. You, know, you all know, you know those parents that send in the photos to magazines. And, you know, it's this whole industry around children. Every baby, whatever. You know, it almost like makes this ideal picture of a, of a baba. But the, the Jewish people didn't do that at all. They actually, the, the picture of a child or youth or children symbolize, symbolizes to them foolishness, immature. So now, Jesus makes a statement that the kingdom of God belongs to these. Can you imagine the shock on these Jewish people's faces that he puts a child in front of them and saying, Hey, look! You need to model this. Can you imagine the shock, cultural shock on their faces when Jesus did that? Uh, I just want you guys to understand the weight of that. In verse 13, you see, the, the, as the parents were bringing the children, and it's so funny, one of the commentaries is saying, listen, the parents had to bring them, so they're assuming it was either babies or toddlers. I don't know how they stand in a queue with a toddler. But they, you know, they did it. They brought the kids and the toddlers, and I can just imagine the moms with kids on their hips, you know, standing here coming to Jesus, please bless my child, you know, pray for my child. Would you just speak a blessing of my child? And the disciples come and they rebuke them. Again, we see this mindset of, listen, they're not worth your time here. Go away. And then it says, Jesus became indignant. That word means he was almost angry at the, un un the, the, the unjust action in front of him. He looked at him and said, guys, you don't understand. And then after this story, I'm going to make my point now, just bear with me. We get a story of a guy called the young rich ruler in the midst of this. So Jesus just did this action of the child on the lap and speaking about, you know, the kingdom of God belongs to these. And you see this young rich ruler. I'm not sure if, if this young rich ruler maybe stood and, and looked at this scene, but he came to Jesus and said, listen, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus gave him an answer. He said, you know, do all these things and he list the commandments. And this guy goes and say, oh, I did all these things. Is there anything else I could do? I can imagine in that moment he was like, ah. Oh, I'm there. I've done all these things. And then Jesus says, Oh, you lack one thing. Now that you're asking me, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And it actually said that as Jesus looked at him and actually scripture said Jesus loves, loved him. And as he gave that answer, the young rich ruler reacted and it said he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had many possessions. Now again, I just want to say disclaimer, it's not a sin to be rich. That's not what I'm saying here. But wealth occupied his heart. Okay? Wealth was what gave him status. He lived according to his wealth and not necessarily according to God. Do it all make sense? But even that story ends with this statement when Jesus, the disciples and Jesus have a conversation about what just happened and Jesus ends that whole event with this. Those who are first are lost and those who are lost are first. You see the golden thread from Mark 9, 10. And then I'm almost done here. <laughs> he goes on after that. 
And again, he foretells his death and in resurrection to the disciples. Now you, by now you would think the disciples would get it. They're like, please, this is a dof. And he again tells them, listen, I'm going to die. I'm going to get resurrected. And directly after that story, verse 35, Mark 10, verse 35, I want to read this to you. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, Do you, you do not know what you are asking? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism for with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which, with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to, all, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard that, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be grown among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. And then verse 45, the first time from Mark 9 to 10, Jesus settles the argument by what? By revealing himself. By doing this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, he speaks here about the Gentile rulers. So he's taking on what the disciples are thinking. Do you know that you and I sitting here, we are discipled by the culture around us. What you watch, what you see, what you read, you are being discipled indirectly by it. And yet the disciples, they were discipled by the Roman culture that they found themselves in. And here Jesus takes on this thinking, you know, of Gentiles ruling and ruling over you and forcing over you and say, listen, my kingdom is the upside down kingdom. It works a little bit differently. I'm not here to come and just rule like the Romans. I'm here to serve and be a slave to all and to give my life a ransom for many. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? It's just so beautiful to me. And I want to just highlight four things and then I'm done. Because this picture of the child on the lap I feel like it's a prophetic picture for us in Josh Jen and for each one of us here this morning, what God is calling us to. Are you all still with me? And the first thing is, I sound like a broken record, but this morning I can do it because I can. Okay. But this first picture of a child, is hum- it, it, it refers to humility. You see, the one thing of a child I've realized, and I, I often see it when Emma jumps on the trampoline. She doesn't go to the trampoline because she wants to be in the Olympics one day. So she doesn't, I don't put her in the trampoline, you know, and she starts exercising and jumping because she wants to exercise to be in the Olympics. She wants to be successful. She jumps because she wants me to jump with her. That is her reasoning. She doesn't have success in mind when she does that. She has me in mind when she does it. You see the difference? The attitude of a child it's never success, but it's the Father. You're called to have Him. And you're called for Him. 
There's this a quote. Someone said, the human heart quickly becomes self-centered. It was, if we are not childlike, we can turn our following of Jesus into self-exaltation. We can quickly make following Jesus all about ourselves. What does humility look like? It looks like going to Jesus and letting him hold you. His love drains out all self-centeredness, poison, resentments, and unforgiveness. Isn't that beautiful? Someone want to cry when I read that. <laughs> um, you know, pride, the rich young ruler, the child, humility, but pride, the rich young ruler, he boasted in keeping the commandments. He said, I have done all these things. I'm successful, God. And yet Jesus obviously pointed out, well, you lack one thing. <laughs> That's what pride does. I have done it. <laughs> the second thing I feel like this child speaks to us, it speaks about not being self-conscious. Not being self-conscious, so self-aware that it actually holds us back in following the Lord. You know, you're being discipled by the culture of the world and it puts in you a certain model that you need to be. Comparison. I mean, we can go through all these things. Ladies, you know, there is just the image of beauty and the image of how things need to be that is put out there for you. Even for us men, also nowadays, you know. Everyone wants to look like Keenan. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, but... Um, Andrew Murray, a Wellington a local Dwemini, said the true beauty of childlikeness is the absence of self-consciousness. Last night we had two students over and what, what, it's the first thing that Emma did is she went and said, ask Ingrid, please put on my pink dress, put on the pink dress and in the middle of the living room we went and started dancing. And just not self-aware. She was a little bit shy at the beginning, but not self-aware at all. I mean, obviously I'm not going to do that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but um, it's just a child is just not self-aware at all. The rich young ruler, pride, very much aware of his status in life, that he had many possessions. The third thing I feel like a child represents is dependence, to understand for our need to be with them. John Wesley, um, one of the fathers of the Methodist movement, he said, little children are lowly at heart and they know themselves utterly ignorant and helpless and hang upon their Father in heaven to supply all their needs. Opposite pride, you lack one thing. Your dependency is on your wealth. Your dependency is what is occupying your heart. You guys see the difference? Two more things and then I'm done. This picture of a child, soft heart, someone that's quick to obey, open for input. This young rich ruler, Jesus told him, you lack one thing. It seems like if you read the story that he went away sorrowful, that he didn't actually respond to the call of Jesus to follow him. You see, if you think you're sitting here and you're part of this cruise, uh, not cruise ship, battleship, you're part of this battleship and you think you are mature, that means that there's no room for you to grow. And that is pride. This battleship only works when all of us have a childlike heart. That we're open for correction, open for, for being steered in the right direction, open to, to realign what we need to realign, open to, to look for input. Um, you know, that is, that is a, a heart that I believe God is calling all of us together for. 
And then the last thing, this picture of a child. A child is so easily in awe and wonder. And one thing I know at the moment, Emma, at school, they're doing bugs. I mean, I'm, I'm not a fan of bugs at all. Um, you can just ask Wally. I don't like bugs. I don't like spiders. I don't like snakes. I don't like anything more than two legs. You know, oh, well, well, well yeah, I don't like bugs so much. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyways, um, she, or, uh, since they're doing, starting doing bugs, and at home, she is in awe of every little bug she sees. She even had a moth that wasn't alive anymore as a pet for a, for a morning, you know. And she brings worms to me, and in that moment, I want to like be like, no, thank you. But I'm like, oh, cute, oh, boy. Um, she, uh, the other morning, she started crying because all the, the moths, they go in those, what do you call it, cocoons, eh? And they're now there at the top. And she's crying because they're not moving and they're not interacting with her. And, and, you know, but she's so easy in awe and wonder. And that's the thing of a child. They're so easily in awe and wonder. But you and I, we go through life and we, familiarity kicks in. And suddenly we lose that ability to be easily in awe and wonder. We want to be entertained. We want something to pull our attention. Then I will be moved. But I want to tell you, the kingdom of God does not work like that. As Moses mentioned last Sunday, you're not here to be entertained. Never. This church will never be that. But the only way you can keep your heart to be easily in all one is this question. Eh? What am I feeding? What am I eating of? Because if you constantly eat of things of the world, you must probably going to also look for that in the Lord. But if you eat of the Lord, I'm telling you, you're going to look for the Lord everywhere. You hear what I'm saying? Easily in awe and wonder. So here's the thing. The ultimate aim of a child is the Father. Connection with the Father. And I want to make this statement. And we end with this. Men... And the nature of men will always look for thrones to sit on. But the father is looking for children to sit on his lap. That is humility. And that is what's calling all of us to. And I do feel like there's this encouragement of being childlike for this body this morning. For each one of us to be childlike. My wife, do you want to say something? Yes. Of the oil. Or is it okay if she quickly answer me? This is the last thing, and then you can pray us out. <laughs> they will, they will keep, be quiet after this. <laughs> There's one thing every time Ingrid speaks um, of, the, of the oil and the lamp. And this other morning she was praying for the church, or was praying for someone specifically, and she came to me and she said, this thing just, it just came back to me again. And I want you to mention it. I actually made a note to you and said, let Ingrid share about this. Yeah, I just, I think if Jesus stands in front of you and he comes to you, um, I just hear the phrase, oil in the lamp. Is there oil in the lamp? Um, and that's just like a biblical phrase, you know, where there's, worship and incense and looking to Jesus, then the, the lamp is burning, you know. Um, and I'll tell you, if you come to be part of a body, you're never going to find a perfect church service or church body 
anywhere while we're on this side of eternity. But each of us have this sweet, intimate lane that we can run in before the Lord that can never be reproduced by someone else in the room, you know? And if you all come together, you know what that is when we come together and each person brought oil in their lamp. You know, where there's oil, there's light. And sometimes if you come to church, the one thing I always also like, content, content for a soft heart. The moment you come to a thing and you find in your heart something's hardened, something's cynical, something's irritated, something's looking to this body and saying, this is not working, this is not right, I'm frustrated, I'm... Um, cry out for, for the soft heart again because when you come you come with oil I encourage you what's the oil that you bring to this body um, because many Sundays I've been part of the service I mean service is like a small part of this body right the service is just one day in the week we're a body and sometimes the service is a bit wobbly it's like wonky it's awkward moments musical mistakes sound issues Whatever, if the Lord threw us on an island somewhere and we didn't have like our sound desk and our fancy stuff, our chairs, whatever, what would we bring and who would we be, you know? Let's be something that actually is real, you know? God's not interested in how things look. He's interested in how they actually are, you know? And I've, I've, like, I've hit so many lows even with my own, like being unhappy with my own fruit in my life, you know? And when I come back in front of Jesus, that's where I find grace to actually have oil in my lamp. But if I just come to a service, do you know what I mean? If I come and my expectation is singing, speaking, um, sitting, do you hear how empty that is? Like if, but if your expectation is a person, Jesus, then it's different, you know? And you don't, also if you're sitting here and you have guilt and shame, then, then come to Jesus, Come to Jesus. Don't come to a, a, a religion or a theory or compare yourself to people who are in leadership, who look like they're always on fire and they're always strong. I've come to a service sometimes feeling like at the bottom of the barrel and I've said, Lord, I'm here. I bring myself, Lord. So there's not a single person in this room that doesn't matter. Like oil in the lamp. Like I encourage you, like if the worship is struggling, it's not up to the worship leader to lead us in worship. That is like unbiblical in a sense. It's Jesus' blood. So when you come, sorry, I'll finish now. When you come, come with all your heart, I beg you. Come with all your heart. Don't wait for someone else to come for you. Come with everything in your heart. And um, run with Mo and Jules. Run with Keenan and Lashaw. Run with, with Derek and Teresa. Run. Like I'm not listing everyone now. I'm, I'm listing the worship and the uh, and, I, and just trust the Lord that um, the thing, this one I end with the thing that he's called you to actually walk in and be you're only going to receive the grace for it by being with him so the very thing that you're looking for is with the being with him, so that's my encouragement, like if there ever was any passion, any strength anything in our running in this congregation, it was from being with him yeah. That was it. Oil in the lamp. Yeah. I'll stop podcasting now. <laughs> I know it's just to mention what she mentioned and then we're done. Minus is. The worship leader is not a mediator between you and God. I didn't worship this morning because they chose the wrong song. I didn't worship because Keenan did a false note. 
the strength of this congregation since I've become part in 2011 was this. We were a worshiping congregation. Whether we had someone here or not, we worshiped. It's unbiblical to look at a worship leader as being the mediator. The blood of Christ brings us into the presence of the Lord, each one of us. And that is what we bless you with. Jesus, I just pray in this word of the oil and being childlike. Lord, I thank you. You're not calling us to um, being childish, immature, but you're calling us to be children that matures as we connect with the Father. Together, in unity, in community. And I just speak over this battleship. Holy Spirit, that they will be filled with you full of you, overflow with you. Jesus, that the cry in the hearts would be more of you for your glory and to see you be crowned as we sang Nana, Lord of Lords, that, um, that they are passion and be passionate about your kingdom, the reign of the King, Jesus, in every area and every place and in every heart. And just speak this blessing over them, Lord. And uh, I thank you, God, that even as they have impacted um, my family, I just thank you, God, that, uh, Lord, that, uh, um, that you would bless this body. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you can just give me a few, few minutes.